This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 12th of August 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kyiv, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through some of the papers with Tim Dowling, who's a columnist, an author and host of the podcast Insult My Intelligence. Then, how female soldiers in Ukraine will no longer have to fit into men's uniforms. First, though, here's the news. Thousands of people gathered in Niger's capital on Friday to demonstrate in favour of last month's coup. Russia has warned that military intervention in Niger would lead to protracted confrontation after the regional bloc ECOWAS said it would assemble a standby force. The death toll from the Maui wildfires in Hawaii rose to 67 on Friday. Officials have warned that search teams could still find more dead from the fire that torched 1,000 buildings and left thousands homeless, likely requiring many years and billions of dollars to rebuild. And President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, may be headed for a criminal trial, US Special Counsel David Weiss said, shortly after promotion into that role on Friday, in a sign that courtroom drama could play an outsized role in the US 2024 presidential election. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello, welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and in the studio with me is Tim Dowling. He is an author, he's a columnist, he also has a podcast called Insult My Intelligence. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. Thank you for coming here. I understand it was slightly traumatic because you clashed with all the overnight passengers coming off Heathrow with their very large suitcases. (laughs) Yeah, there are people, it's just people who've maybe never been to London before getting off a very long flight with a lot of luggage and then trying to use one of the most enormous escalators in London. And it was pretty traumatic. A lot of people's, I saw a lot of bags going up without any people. <laughs> uh, it's, it, there's got to be a more efficient way, surely. Well, there is a lift, actually. <laughs> But not everybody knows where it is. They just follow everyone along and then suddenly they're tumbling down the stairs with their luggage falling after them. Now, you uh, present this podcast, Insult My Intelligence, and I understand you've been looking into bananas. Among other things, yeah. We we were interested in the the sort of worldwide fungus that's threatening the worldwide banana crop and what could be done about it. Uh, And it turns out that the banana is particularly vulnerable to disease because there's only one kind. We all eat a, a type of banana called Cavendish. And there, in terms of commercial exports, there just isn't another one. Why? Because, uh, because it's resistant. To, uh, up until very recently, it was considered resistant to disease. It's, uh, there's now a disease that it, it's fallen prey to. But there was an old banana called the Gros Michel, which fell prey to disease in the 1960s and was pretty much wiped out. The Cavendish was brought in to replace it, and now that's threatened. It's a clone. They're all, all the plants are pretty much genetically identical with very few variations. And so they're, you know, when a disease comes along that it threatens it, uh, it goes everywhere quickly. So we're about to have a worldwide shortage of bananas. It's possible, although there are people at work on uh, genetic solutions to this problem. 
And how would you feel if you could never eat a banana again? I'd be okay with it, to be honest. Yeah, I think I would too. But you know, they're they're good for potassium and also pectin. If you before you perform, uh, if you're going to be nervous, they 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 have a kind of natural beta blocker in them. It's really good to have a, a banana before you go on stage. I know they're good for you. I just don't like them. <laughs> I, I I used to think that it was because when I was a child, this old banana that got wiped out, which was by all accounts a slightly nicer banana, was what I was used to, and and I never really took to the Cavendish. Yeah. So I discovered an interesting thing about bananas the other day. It's oh. that when they ripen, their stems release ethylene, uh, that's a gas, and when it spreads to the rest of the fruit, it makes it ripen very fast and obviously makes them go, you know, brown and squishy. And so if you wrap plastic or tin foil around the stem of bananas, it keeps them fresher for much I longer. I think I've seen people do that and, and then never known why. Well, that's that's apparently why. That little um, ping, I think, was probably uh, this experience broadcaster not having <laughs> Well, it was one of us. I, I've taken care of mine now. <laughs> um, you also, you're also a columnist, and you've been, because it's silly season, of course, it's August, very little uh, yeah. sort of local news going on. Well, actually, that's not true. There's quite <laughs> a lot going on. But you have been writing about cocktails. Yeah, I have. For my sins, I have been, A, making a lot of cocktails in my home and also visiting bartenders up and down London, tasting their cocktails. So, Largely beer cocktails at this which point. Which sounds disgusting. Um, some of them are disgusting. Uh, particularly any beer cocktail, I think, made with stout is 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 peculiar and disgusting. But some of them are like the Lagerita. Oh, fantastic I, name. I would recommend. <laughs> the Lagerita. Um in our headlines, we were talking about uh, Hunter Biden uh, and his memoir is called Beautiful Things. And it's a story of addiction. And mm. because uh, speaking of cocktails, he said, I could always drink five times more than anyone else. Um, uh, he first bought crack cocaine at the age of 18 uh, and fell in love with alcohol in high school. Um, but he's turned his life around and yes. it's all great. Uh, Up except, to a point. <laughs> Yeah. As we've been reporting in, in the headlines now, uh, there is a, a new special counsel, uh, Vice, and this is all uh, bad news for, 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 for Biden Jr. in terms of his legal problems. Yeah, and unlike a lot of what happens in American politics, this was a total surprise. Nobody was expecting this announcement to come yesterday. The guy, David C. Weiss, who's been named the uh, special counsel, has been, is the guy who's been investigating Hunter Biden for, since 2018 and, and had produced... With all of that investigation, including his personal life, his business dealings, had produced basically two misdemeanor tax charges, essentially not paying your tax on time, and a gun charge, because I think he lied on a form about past drug convictions. Uh, And he was about to do a plea deal where he did no time, and that suddenly fell apart. And we don't really know why, except I believe it was uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers were requesting blanket immunity from future prosecution, which I think is... What we're all really after in life. (laughs) Blanket immunity from future prosecution. Um, So it's it's strange. We don't really know what's going to happen. I have to continually remind myself that Hunter Biden is not now nor has ever been the president of the United States. He holds no public office. This has wasted a lot of public money on an investigation that's a, a private citizen. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Donald, Donald Trump is making much of this. But when you, as you point out, what, what uh, Biden <laughs> is guilty of or alleged to be guilty of is two counts of tax evasion and uh, an yeah. attempt to avoid gun charges. Trump, however. <laughs> <laughs> Trump was in court yesterday as well. That sort of fell by the wayside. He was in court to make sure he didn't intimidate witnesses in his own trial. 
I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, and the fact that these two two legal problems are, are, are being talked about in the same breath. Yeah. And, and of course, you think because this special counsel, there is a special counsel investigating Trump, the special counsel investigating uh, Biden's son. You'd think the Republicans would be thrilled with this, but they're furious mm. about the whole thing. They it's, think this is a whitewash. It's quite extraordinary. And I also think that with Trump, of course, there's a lot more that's still to come out. And, uh, of course, very interested to see what happens in terms of Russian interference. How much has he had to do with Russia? Is there compromise on him? We don't know this. We still don't know. And there's still there are more indictments coming down the line. De- within the month, we should see one from the state of Georgia as well. Yeah. So Russia's interesting in this because as well as the illegal invasion of Ukraine, Uh, and whatever they may or may not have done with Donald Trump, they're now sending a rocket to the moon. Yes, you'd think they had their hands Other full. To do. Yeah. <laughs> but they've sent a rocket to the moon. They, their, their last mission to the moon was in 1976, I think, almost 50 years ago. But uh, uh, very late at night on the uh, yesterday morning, I think, th- this rocket took off, a Soyuz rocket, which is going to take about five days. Everything's gone well so far. Within five days, it should be orbiting around the moon. Which is extraordinary. And I mean, they're in a, in a race with several other countries. Yeah, among them, well, I didn't realize, I remember when people going to the moon was such a big deal, you would hear about it. But I hadn't realized that there was an Indian uh, rocket already orbiting the moon. And there's a race to see who's the first person to put a lander down there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it is attempting to be the first country to, to land the craft, as you say. It's near the lunar south pole, which is something called the Boguslawski Crater. It sounds made up, doesn't it? It, <laughs> it completely does. It's, uh, it's expected to take about five days to travel uh, to the moon and then spend a week orbiting before landing. Um, now, what I also think is interesting is, of course, NASA is still uh, doing this itself. It's spoken of a potential lunar gold rush. Uh, because of people trying to get there. They're after um, minerals there, water, helium-3, uh, rare earth minerals. Um, and uh, one of one of the aims, one of NASA's aims, is to send the first woman and the first person of colour to the moon. Uh, it's extraordinary that that hasn't happened No, yet. that hasn't happened. Well, I mean, to be fair, although it, it's probably unfair, they, they, nobody's been to the moon in a very long time. So the opportunity, the opportunity for equal opportunity hasn't presented itself. Um, I do think it's extraordinary that we are all suddenly racing to the moon. I mean, you know, this basically, at the moment, they're just looking for water. Yeah. And the idea is if there's enough water there in the form of ice, we can set up a moon base and then start mining rare earth metals. Um, I guess rare, I don't know why they're called rare earth metals if they're on the moon. Mm. But uh, <laughs> That's true, rare moon minerals. <laughs> rare moon minerals <laughs> and moon water. I'm not, I'm not sure I would drink moon water. Uh, um. But the, the, it seems something very... Given that we're all on the verge of a climate catastrophe, there seems something a bit reckless about just mining rare earth metals oh, off the moon. It's absolutely, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, the idea that there could be a, a race to colonize it too is... It doesn't is... seem that cost effective. <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, but, but speaking about women on the moon, I've interviewed a couple of female astronauts and they've always talked about how it's been really important to um, all the tests that are taken on them for, you know, basically the sort of monthly cycles and how that's going to work, but also the their uniforms, because, of course, having a completely different body shape from male astronauts, they've got to be different types of spacesuits. This is an ongoing issue for sort of everything, isn't it? In that it, it, We suddenly find out that seatbelts in cars are basically designed to fit men and mm-hmm. they don't fit women very well. Yeah, no, it always goes across my throat. Yeah. I think if there was an <laughs> accident, it would just garrot me. 
<laughs> yeah, so they, I mean, everything to presumably everything to do with space travel was designed around a sort of average male body size. Mm, but as as in so many things, so over a year into Russia's full scale war on re- Ukraine, you may be surprised to hear that the Ukrainian armed forces have only just released their first uniforms specifically tailored for women. So the plan was first announced in summer 2022 after pressure from a volunteer group called Arm Women Now. By the end of the year, these volunteers had worked with the army to design a uniform. So Monocle's editorial intern, Julia Laska, uh, spoke with the group's founder, who's a Ukrainian MP. She's called Irina Nikorak uh, about the project. Now more than 60,000 women are serving in the armed forces of Ukraine in all type and uh, branches of uh, the Ukrainian army. And Ukraine has one of the largest number of women in armed forces among NATO member countries, uh, if not the highest. So the number of these women in the army is increasing every day. If in um, 2021 we had approximately 30,000 women in armed forces, now there are already 60 or even more. And from this amount, more than 7,000 uh, are at the front line in war zone. So uh, we see that uh, Ukrainian women are as capable as men of taking up arms and fighting for our independence, for our freedom. And of course, Ukrainian women lead this war in different ways as volunteers, as defenders on the front line and as mothers who save their children from war. But after full-scale invasion, thousands of women as volunteers, it's it's important thing, stand side by side with men in this war. They are really strong women who inspire me. They uh, change the lives of others and uh, demonstrate courage and leadership. And in April 2022, when I recognized that in our army, there is no uniforms I mean, female uniforms, which fits women body, women anthropometry. I was surprised. It's the only case when it really matters how woman is dressed, because comfortable uniforms and protection ammunition are all about survival. So from that period, we decided with our, with my team to create this uniform and um, to do a huge uh, work for implementing the standard of combat female uniform at state level, because we started to do it as volunteers, as NGO, but in very close communication with the representative of armed forces of Ukraine. And of course, uh, we take into account their recommendations uh, when we designed uh, a pattern. So we learned international experience uh, first of all, um, experience of uh, the United States Army and, of course, experience of Great Britain Army and even Israel experience. For a few months, we um, trying to to create something really good and comfortable and functional. And it's not only about uniform, it's also uh, tactical underwear, appropriate body armor. Before full-scale invasion, from starting from 2014 and for the old period of Ukrainian independence, our uh, women in the army get um, uh, men's uh, underwear in the army, uh, men's uniform. So everything that was created and sued for, for men, 
What kind of plans do you have next? What are your plans for the future with this project? We continue uh, to provide women defenders with uh, uniforms, with tactical underwear, uh, with uh, thermal underwear and some other protection ammunition um, till the time uh, when Ministry of Defence will do it at the state level. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, now we have a little victory and I would say success story when uh, volunteer organizations started to do it by themselves. And um, for me personally, it's uh, a big victory because during 30 years of Ukrainian independence, nobody even think about providing women with the ammunition uh, according to their needs. So men's needs uh, are providing for 100% and women needs like for 0%. So I'm, I'm not sure that this year it will be possible to provide them at the state level, but it's first very important step from our side to insist on this gender-oriented budgeting in uh, armed forces, in Ministry of Defense, and of course in other uh, state bodies who are involved in this war. I mean National Guardia, um, different organizations like uh, special units of national police, because in this organization there are also like thousands of women and uh, these women also involved in war at the front line. That's Irina Nikorak there uh, speaking to Julia Lasica. Uh, I'm quite fascinated to know what technical underwear is, Tim. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to see a picture. (laughs) Oops, don't go there. (laughs) Uh, This is Tim Dowling, of course. He's a columnist and author, a podcast host. He's with me to have a look through the paper. And just looking at the role of of Ukrainian women in war, of course, many of them, as as Irina points out, are going to the front line or want to go to the front line. In Russia, women's role is slightly different in that what we're seeing is military wives and mothers challenging the war, but in really quite subtle ways. Yeah, I think they have to be subtle because they're they're um, you know they're slightly hostages. Their their loved ones are serving, and they're not in a position to speak out, but they do have a certain moral authority because they're they're part of this sort of patriotic swell, the the, the sort of the Russia that believes in in all this stuff. Mm. Um, uh, they're they're representatives of that, so they can criticize with a certain moral authority that nobody else has, and that can be anything from sort of how they're soldier sons are being treated Mm. to even like tactics. Uh, And it's interesting how they're doing this because it's letter writing campaigns, it's videos, it's it's not direct confrontation. No, it's social media. Um, It's, you know, they're, they're when they want information, obviously, this is the most important thing to them is that their loved ones get back safely. So when they want information, they can they tend to go out and get it Mm. by our whatever means they can use. Uh, Open Democracy did a, a big a survey on this. They said our research into the responses of the mothers and wives of Russia's soldiers to war in Ukraine uh, is based on in-depth analysis of Russian state-controlled newspapers and Russian independent digital media. And it reveals that while these women are heavily dependent upon the state, they are not silent, passive figures who unquestioningly accept the sacrifice of their male relatives to injury or death. Uh, and uh, it talks about how vocal they are and how 
how they're trying to spread this news and how they're also trying to appeal to the state to facilitate prisoner of war exchanges, locate missing soldiers, get the bodies back yeah. and, and so on. Uh, and it does seem that actually that's paid off slightly. So, for instance, back in January, uh, Putin uh, actually passed a decree uh, saying that he would pay five million rubles. That's about mm, nearly $70,000 in aid to the families of Russian soldiers who killed in the war in Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, that's a significant amount of money. Yeah, that's quite a big uh general concession. I mean, they're not, they're not traditionally part of the anti-war movement. Obviously, they can't be. And they've been criticized for that, because I think the idea is that if you're anti-war, you've got to speak out and mm. you've got to pick a side. But they're not really in a position to pick a side. And they can only work, as you say, within the system. And this survey is also showing that most of the people who are go into the military willingly in Russia are from very uh, economically deprived yeah. areas. Uh, so a great deal of poverty driving those decisions and, and clearly still affecting their families. Well, there's one family who's not going to get any kind of payout soon. And this is the most extraordinary story that's been running here in Britain. Now, you wouldn't think that it was important. Very old pub, a bit of a local landmark because it's wonky. It's kind of subsided over the years. Uh, somebody buys it. It burns down. End of story, you'd think, but not so fast. No, this is, I mean, it's basically Britain's leaning tower of Pisa, isn't it? This, <laughs> I, I've never been there myself, but the Crooked House pub has been, it was built in 1765 and shortly thereafter started to sink. <laughs> uh, and now it's, as we say here, we, it's, it's gone wonky. Uh, it slouches at about a 16 degree angle. And people have been going there for years. It's an attraction largely because um, you're, uh, if, you, if you put a tennis ball on one of the tables, it rolls uphill, or it at least appears to. Anyway, it, it was bought by a developer, and it's hard to see what a developer could do with a crooked pub. But uh, it, that doesn't matter anymore because it burnt down nine days after they bought it. But there's more to the story. There is more to the story, apart from the fact that the fire brigade couldn't get there because the road was blocked by a giant mound of earth that mysteriously had appeared. Um, a few days after the after the pub uh, burnt, um, it was then bulldozed to the ground in direct contravention of the orders of the council. Uh, and the most recent reports I've heard suggest that the excavator that they used to knock it over was on site a week before the... <laughs> the fire. So <laughs> the mayor of the West Midlands, uh, Andy Street, has declared that he wants to see it built, rebuilt brick by brick exactly as it was, which I would, I would imagine presents particular challenges. Yes, absolutely. Uh, looking at the people that bought it, now they, they are a development firm, as yeah. you say, um, and there have been a lot of local complaints about they, them. They have a local reputation. Um, what are they called? ATE Farms? They... Uh, something like that. Yeah, ATE Farms. Uh, and uh, they've uh, bought another pub back in 2020. They gutted that before the council issued a stop notice. Apparently, it was a beautiful old pub. They took out all of that. Um, and the council immediately slapped an asset of community value on it. Uh, but that was overturned. They've also applied to, to turn the first floor of the pub into accommodation. They want to build property in the car park. Uh, they, they want, I mean, and there, there have been so many objections. From, from neighbours. Yeah, a local said uh, that the village itself was lucky to survive their attentions. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you put a, p- a cricket pub back together. It's uh, this has happened before in Britain, though. Developers have moved in and knocked down historic pubs, and they have been forced to put them up again exactly as they were. Uh, and I was quite um, amused by um, this was on social media, but also in in some of the papers that there were photographs of of the the woman who who is one half of the company uh, sitting in business class on her way to Dubai sipping champagne. It didn't say when that photograph was taken, <laughs> but it but the, the implication was was clear that, that she was she enjoying had an alibi. Yeah, well, that she was enjoying the high life whilst the locals right. go without their their crooked pub. Uh, which is, um, you know, and 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 dressed. Uh, I think she she had a sort of sleeveless top on or something. Right. You well, know, I think whatever paper it was, just decided to 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 call that skimpy dress. But it was only to go along with with the kind of overall narrative. Of the story. It's worth saying we don't really know what happened yet, but I think um, the police are treating this as arson. So. Uh, absolutely. Um, now speaking of skimpy dress, uh, women in China are seeking freedom to dress. And this has led to a craze for fake belly buttons. Yeah, it's not often I have to read a headline three times before and just think, wait, what? What's happening? The latest fake belly button fad in China is described as uh, the most successful invention of 2023 by one fan. These are, I mean, fake belly button. If that makes you think of um, invasive surgery, it's worth saying that the fake belly buttons are basically their stickers. I'm just looking at a picture. It's kind um, of gross. They're sort of convincing stickers, but they are basically like fake tattoos. You, And the idea is that you put the fake belly button on your belly slightly higher than your actual belly button, and then you obscure your real belly button. And the higher belly button, the higher false belly button, makes your legs look longer. That's extraordinary. That's really quite extraordinary. Apparently, there are also uh, fake breasts and buttocks in China. Yeah, and fake shoulders. What? I don't know how that works. <laughs> but the fake belly button is an absolute bargain. You get 32 stick-on navels for less than 60 US cents. Uh, and apparently, they're non-reflective and even waterproof. <laughs> um, this person who's talking about it says uh, they're, uh, they're not easy to drop off. I'm willing to call them the most successful invention of 2023. <laughs> Yeah. And someone else quoted using them saying it's it's this isn't just a fake belly button sticker. It's a cheating tool for bidding farewell to my bidding farewell to my 50-50 body proportion. I, I'm sorry, I just don't really understand the story. I'm not familiar with that phrase, but I guess it means I'm 50% torso and 50% leg. <laughs> I would like to adjust that. Quite extraordinary. Um, So we've just got a few minutes left. So before we go, I just want to turn to the subject of your columns because you really mine your own life and that of your family. I have done for a depressingly long time. Do they Uh, mind? uh, My wife doesn't mind uh, and my children were far too young (laughs) to raise any objections when I started. And by the time they, you know did start raising objections. It was too late for me to give back the money, basically. But you don't use their names? No, I don't use their names. And I used to have a standing uh, payment system where I, whereby I would give them £5 if I quoted them directly. But they had to come to me and point to where I'd quoted them. It wasn't my job to sort out the billing. And because they never read my column, I've only really had to shell out 
four or five times in that's, 15 years. That's extraordinary. So tell us some of that. I mean, I know that your latest column is about them moving out. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, parents of children of a certain age, sort of early to mid-20s, will understand that this is a very slow process. And sometimes there's a sort of boomerang effect where they go away for a year and they come back. But it looks like come the end of September, all our three sons will will be out for the first time ever. And, and how do you feel alone. about that? Well, I, I'm slightly thinking I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I'm, <laughs> well, the, the the youngest one moved out last week and the, and the middle one is going to move out in September and the oldest one moved out about a year ago. They obviously all came back for the pandemic and in that sort of crisis situation, it was great having everyone around. But the pandemic's over, you know. Yeah. It's been over for a while. Yeah. Well, of course, this points to a story that's that's been hitting the headlines for the last couple of weeks, which is uh, completely unaffordable rents in London. I mean, people yes. are finding it so <clears throat> difficult. They're having to do application letters, yes. send in CVs, send gifts, all that sort of thing. Um, the, the middle one who's been who's, who's trying to find a, a flat with three friends had hair-raising tales. Basically, you, if you're going to see a place and, and people are gazumping people for rental properties. You know, they're, they're, they're paying over the asking price, which is already extortionate. I mean, it, it really is extortionate, but what could the government possibly do? I don't know. I mean, the, the rent rules at present are, are a scandal, especially in the way that you can uh, dismiss tenants, you can evict tenants for very little reason. Um, and there are also uh, property developers and, and, and estate agents presenting pretty ridiculous charges on top of rent. But I don't know what you do. The rental market is only going to get worse at this point. Yeah. Um, the, the big issue, which is, of course, the magazine that, that funds, uh, gives funds to homeless people, says rents are now at their most unaffordable point for a decade. The, this is their, they're quoting Zoopla, which is a property portal, found that rents across the UK have been growing faster than earnings and now account for more than 28% of average pre-tax earnings. That's higher than the 10-year average of 27%. Uh, it's at its worst for a decade. Seven out of 12 regions in the UK uh, uh, in, and in London, rents equate to around forty percent of gross earnings. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. And it's the, the the rental market is shrinking. You know, the real problem is there there aren't enough places for people to rent. And because of the mortgage crisis, people are leaving that sector. Landlords are leaving the sector, so there are going to be fewer places to rent and fewer, mm. not more. So most of our kids are coming home. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, don't say that. I've only just got rid of mine. <laughs> Uh, on that note, I think it's time for us to go. Uh, thank you so much, Tim, thank for you. being a with pleasure. me. Uh, that's all for Monocle on Saturday. And thanks to our uh, studio engineer in London, that's Mariella Bevan. Our producer, Isabella Jewell, and my guest was Tim Dowling. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Emma Nelson will be in the studio with you tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. celebration of all things print, tune in to The Stack, featuring expert analysis, the view of magazine veterans and a look at what's flying off newsstands around.